five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. This week, we're featuring a Future in Space Operations teleconference with serial entrepreneur Daniel Faber, CEO of startup Orbit Fab, which bills itself as gas stations in space. Daniel, an Australian who became a Canadian citizen, was most recently the CEO of Deep Space Industries, which he helped build and reach $10 million in revenues before he left. Listen in. Yeah, so appreciate the, uh, the chance here, Harley and, and Dan, to, uh, to present. I uh, hope everyone's had a chance to, to download the deck. It's uh, a somewhat short deck um, for, uh, for what's meant to be an hour. So jump in with questions. Um, there will probably be time for questions at the end. But um, I'll uh, I'll be talking a lot to the uh, to the breach line. So um, let me start just then perhaps with uh, with an introduction to myself. Um, yeah, Daniel Faber grew up in Tasmania, Australia. Uh, now living in California. This is uh, this is country number seven. Um, I guess my journey started about uh, 21 years ago in first year university. I decided that uh, I wanted to help humanity, and uh, that meant uh, working on existential risks. That seemed to be the most sense for anyone who can integrate. Um, so the uh, space settlement addresses several of those risks. So they decided that was that was my career goal. But in Australia, there were no space agency. There's no real uh, companies that I could rely on to to tell me what to do. So I had to figure out uh, what that meant myself, and decided that uh, really it meant creating permanent jobs in space. Uh, that's that's how we're going to cross this threshold at the moment. We have uh, you know six months since uh, that, that are covered by the government. But uh, once we have permanent jobs in space and a profit uh, center to, to rely on, things will really start to expand. So that sort of focused my, my thinking, um, and I created a list of all of the industries that I thought could generate sufficient revenue to uh, really pay for that first job in orbit, uh, get us from zero to one, if you like. Uh, and there are only three things on that list, um, uh, space-based solar power, tourism, and asteroid mining. Um, I've added a couple of things to the list over time. I very quickly realized that space-based solar power would require mining before it would be feasible, um, and uh, I couldn't see myself as a tour operator, so I decided I'd, I'd spend my time working on uh, on asteroid mining. And that's that's really set a direction for my career. So uh, 20 years into, into that roadmap, uh, trying to achieve uh, an asteroid mining operation, uh, along the way I've, uh, I've added a few things, like I said, but... Uh, um, I started out uh, as an engineer, um, self-taught in building satellites, uh, ended up building a lot of microsatellites, uh, high-precision pointing satellites and, and things that were sort of cutting edge, um, worked on inflatable space stations, uh, came late to, to CubeSats and, and realized a very different philosophy there, but managed to work on that for a few years. Um, but uh, I was always looking at, at starting a company. Even when I got into the industry as an engineer, I realized you know, that, was, that was what was going to matter was where the money was. Uh, and that's what directs where the research goes. So I, uh first company that I started was uh, was in the mining industry, doing uh, geochemical assays uh, for the mining industry. That ran headlong into the global financial crisis, unfortunately. Um, so I learned a lot there, and uh, and we did manage to, uh, to make the instrument. Um, since then, I've worked on a range of things, uh, nuclear fusion reactors, gun launch systems, hypervelocity impactors, Internet for Antarctica, 
Uh, all of those have aspects that are applicable to the asteroid mining scene, be it the communications, the um, mineral assays, um, transport systems, and such. But um, really, this uh, this all came together when, uh, in 2014, I moved to the U.S. and took over uh, running Deep Space Industries. I built that up over the next couple of years to about 10 million of sales. And uh, we focused there on, on, well, first of all, we tried to build a craft that could go out and prospect an asteroid and realized that we couldn't buy a propulsion system that we needed. And so we ended up building a propulsion system and, and focusing that on a place in the market where there was a real need. And so that led to the comet range of, of propulsion systems at Deep Space Industries. Uh, and that, of course, was uh, acquired recently by, uh, by Bradford Space. So while we were looking at Deep Space Industries to, to sell propellant, <laughs> the first step was to build that thruster and, uh, and realized that, uh, during that uh, that there was also a huge pain in needing a lot of, high de of delta V. To go out to an asteroid, you just need a lot of fuel, uh, especially on the kind of cycling orbits between asteroids and back that we were looking at. And so we would end up being our own main customer for propellant in orbit, perhaps. But um, that's, uh, that's sort of how I, I came to seeing uh, the propellant market in orbit and, and realizing there might be an opportunity. Uh, while at Deep Space Industries, um, Jeremy Shield started there as the end of my, uh, my term at Deep Space Industries. Uh, my co-founder now at, at OrbitFab, uh, we realized we, we shared a vision. His background is international business development uh, for the automotive industry. And so uh, he was running business plan competitions and doing marketing for New Space. Um, we shared a vision, and on slide two, sort of this, is, this is our vision for the future. We see a bustling industrial economy. We see the the need to put uh, humans in space to, to help humanity, but also the path to that is really a commercial path. It's, uh, it's finding the, uh, the ways to make all of this pay and make it profitable. So with that as a, as a future, um, we see spacecraft coming and going, docking and undocking, moving between orbits, uh, even moving between planets. And if we want to create that future starting from now, well, slide three is where we're at now. We, we don't get to touch these satellites after launch. They lose as little fuel as possible because, uh, because everything's expensive. And when the fuel is done, they become trash. So there's a long way that, uh, that we have to go, and, uh, and how do we get there? Well, let's, let's take a sort of deeper dive into, into where we're at right now. Slide four, for context, the, uh, the, these three types of assets, cars, planes, and spacecraft, they've all got about 15 years of life. Uh, in a car, you'll refill it 750 times. That's once a week for 15 years. In a plane, they refill multiple times a day. Uh, they're, they're always flying to maximize the utilization of that asset. That asset value is about the same as a big spacecraft, hundreds of millions of dollars. So an aircraft will refill 40,000 times. And a spacecraft, well, they never refuel. That's how we built them. So if you can imagine if cars had to take all of their fuel around, we really wouldn't be driving very far. If planes had to take all of their fuel around, they would never take off. This is just uh, you know, fundamentals of physics. But uh, yeah, we might do very small flights. We might build them for very specific purposes. And that's effectively what we do with spacecraft. They're designed for very specific purposes, but there's no flexibility to this model. And it's absolutely incredible that we do anything at all, considering that, that this is how constrained we are. So if we could have satellites uh, refueled and just be able to go to a gas station or have a tow truck come and, and fill you up, you'll get better asset utilization. You'll definitely be able to, uh, to have flexible operations, change between missions. You'd also significantly reduce the capex. You don't lock all the capex in up front when you put all that propellant into the one gas tank. 
uh, you could provide mission extensions and a lot more flexibility on the back end of the missions. We could do uh, deep space missions to uh, and missions to the moon in a, in a way that would be more cost effective, um, cyclers and transport vehicles and the like. Um, in fact, we've modeled some of the uh, the applications of, of propellant in orbit, and uh, we could do missions from the ISS to uh, to a tour of the asteroid belt and back to the ISS to use it as a, a true zero-G sample curation facility. Those are the types of things you can do if, uh, if you've got sufficient propellant in orbit. And in fact, if we had vehicles uh, like cars, it's what we'd do. We'd drive out there, we'd, we'd do some samples, you'd refill the, uh, the car, and you'd drive back. So... Um, You'd also be able to perhaps uh, fly low on the top of the atmosphere, uh, remove all the debris that everybody's getting worried about, and uh, and you know, looking at somewhere like the uh, geostationary graveyard orbit, there's a lot of debris in that orbit, but the uh, we, we declare it a graveyard and we think that it's done as long as we push it up, uh, push a satellite up to a graveyard orbit. That, that's still junk floating around there, and I'd love to run a, a junkyard. Uh, I'd love to collect all of that and be able to, to find application for it. To do that, you need to have a tow truck. You really need to have a lot of propellant on orbit. So it will completely change the way that we look at the space economy once we once we have propellant in orbit. So on slide five, uh, the analogy I, I like to draw here is, is to Ferraris, just to sort of wrap up the context setting for this. Uh, all the spacecraft at the moment, they're beautiful. They're, they're Most of them are custom built or made in small runs. Uh, and they're like Ferraris, but it, it's a Ferrari without a gas cap. It's it's effectively uh, use it until the until the gas runs out. So there's a lot of companies now that are looking at uh, building uh, tow trucks, building satellite servicing vehicles. And you can think of this as, as being able to grab the Ferrari and tow it to the top of the hill when it's run out of fuel, so you can still get a good view, or to tow it to the racetrack to save you fuel, so you can you can do more at the racetrack. But um, but these tow trucks are also being designed with the business model that, uh, that closes, but they're designed to, to be thrown out, uh, and again, they become trash when, the, uh, when the, the tow truck runs out of fuel. So what we're, uh, what we're talking about, and we're not the only ones who are, who are looking at this, but uh, we want to put up gas stations. So firstly, the tow trucks will be able to refuel because they're equipped with all the equipment to, uh, to handle dockings and all those kind of things. And then they'll be able to uh, to provide extra services for these satellite Ferraris, uh, and ultimately be able to go and, and refuel the Ferraris in place. So, so that's how we conceive the industry and, and how we play. We're not intending to do satellite servicing or be a tow truck. We just want to be the fuel supply as far as a uh, sort of fixed asset gas station. So, summarise that on on uh, slide six here. Um, there's really five simple steps to this. We build tanks. We put them into orbit, we store them in orbit, and uh, then the, the satellite servicing companies come and, and buy that propellant, buy that fuel, so they can go out and do extended missions of their own and also uh, hopefully refuel uh, other spacecraft, operational constellations and, uh, and larger satellites. So in concept, it's, uh, it's very simple. And, uh, of course, there's a lot that we have to do to, to work through and make each of those happen. So what you're seeing here on the on the tanks, they're they're small. This is sort of our test beds and things. How do we enter into that market? So I think I've put them there as sort of a quarter of the size of a shipping uh, pallet, um, and that's sort of about right where we think we'll start. Um, in terms of, of launching, because we're starting small, we can uh, we can get some launches, uh, secondary launches, and things relatively easy. Uh, of course, we'd like to move up to the point where we're buying a whole rocket at wholesale and uh, and selling at retail. A uh, typical gas station model, I guess. The um, 
The storage in orbit is, uh, is an interesting one. Uh, there are options where we could just become a tank farm and start uh, operating storage facilities for, uh, for propellants that other people own inside the tank. And, uh, and so we're ex exploring those, the different ways to, to run that part of the business. Um, the satellite servicing uh, operators who, who we see as, as being the ones to sort of the natural customers and natural partners to come and use propellant. Uh, we've talked with, uh, with a lot of those. It surprised us how many companies were setting up to, uh, to move into that space. And so we're quite encouraged by where the industry is going. We expect that it'll take a few years for that to come about. But, uh, but we want to help those business models and we believe we can make a, a big impact on those because you, uh, you avoid having to, to ditch the asset and launch a completely new servicing spacecraft uh, after it runs out of fuel. And uh, there was a report put out, I think it was Northern Sky Research that did the report looking at satellite servicing and the size of the market. And they identified, I think, 71% uh, of that, that market was, was fuel dependent. It was tug services or, or refueling or things that were just completely dependent on, on propellant. And so those are the types of things that, uh, that like I said, they make natural buyers for, for this type of uh, operation. And uh, then in terms of um, actually doing the work with the, the operational constellations, yeah, we're relying on the, um, the satellite servicing operators to solve that last 100-kilometer problem, um, their expertise in complex robotics, rendezvous proxops and docking, um, grappling mechanisms, those kind of things. So, uh, so we really see that as, uh, as a problem that, uh, that our customers are solving uh, and we haven't got into, but we're encouraging um, you know, companies to, to really tackle those problems and where we can, we're helping out. So we became members of Converse to talk about the, um, the standards that are being developed and, and how we can be the most cooperative client for a, for a docking so that um, we don't have to, again, carry that rendezvous proxops and docking equipment ourselves, but we, uh, we're very easy to, to come and get propellant from. So we're hoping that, that uh, in those discussions of standards and, and ways to do that, we can also make a, a significant impact just, uh, just by being at the table and, and able to provide an opinion from a, a, um, a client perspective on that docking. So on, on slide seven, sort of slide seven through nine, put together a, um, you know, a few ideas on how what we are doing plays into where the current market is at and, uh, and where we'd like to see it evolving. So at the moment, um, Earth orbiting satellites, uh, the top line uh, on slide seven here, you procure a satellite, you launch it fully fueled, it establishes an orbit, it operates until it deorbits or there's a failure or the fuel is depleted. Uh, a lot of times that, uh, that will become debris at end of life. Uh, that, of course, is, is a significant concern. Uh, deep space missions, uh, you buy the spacecraft, you send it off to, to do its mission, uh, and then leave it there. So that's the extent of, uh, of deep space missions. So we see this as, as sort of a, a generic way to look at, uh, at operations. Uh, on slide eight, the, the satellite servicing vehicles, I've, I've put them here as space tug, but of course there's other models. Um, a space tug that's able to, to launch and, uh, and then be in orbit ready to assist uh, a spacecraft at the end of its life to change orbits, to, uh, to replenish its fuel, or to, to bring it out of orbit. Uh, this makes a change to the industry because now there's a, a feedback into operations. You don't, uh, you're not just limited to the single life of, um, of this spacecraft, and we're able to handle the debris problem. But, of course, at the end of the life of that tug, that's, uh, that's deorbited. So on the next slide, slide nine, some of the changes that, uh, that we then bring to this by, by putting up our tankers and providing fuel. Spacecraft could possibly launch unfueled. Uh, 
and then receive fuel from our tanker, which is stored in orbit. So uh, we're then looking at, uh, at what that impact might be in terms of launching a larger satellite on a launch vehicle and still being able to get it to a geostationary or a high orbit, or still being able to, in the case of deep space missions, uh, throw that into deep space on the right trajectory because it can get fuel from, uh, from a tank that's already in orbit. So that can, uh, can change the launch economics. ULA's Cislunar 1000 architecture, of course, has, has looked at that. And the numbers they've published show, uh, from a distributed launch perspective, a 20% increase in throw to geostationary orbit, and uh, from the top of my head, a 40 or 50% increase in throw to the surface of the moon. So there's significant advantages even just looking at a, a straight distributed launch uh, architecture. And then, uh, so other things, of course, refueling the tugs and allowing the tug then to, to continue operating uh, and uh, be limited only by the life of the electronics and the like. Uh, you're able to operate these assets then uh, until they actually fail. And once they've failed, because the business of the tugs, part of that is to, to remove things from orbit, the tugs themselves can then, uh, and any other satellite, can operate until they have a failure and be removed from orbit or repaired by the servicing vehicles so, so there's no actual deorbit uh, section here until you, you finally decide this asset no longer has any residual value. And, of course, I, I haven't put on here uh, on-orbit salvage, uh, recycling, uh, or, or mining of the debris, but, uh, but that becomes quite an interesting option as well. One other aspect, one other aspect that's, that's on this diagram is looking at deep space missions, and this comes back to, to my personal uh, asteroid mining ambitions. Uh, I'd like to see... Uh, those deep space missions culminating in return of fuel to Earth orbit from asteroids or from the moon. And, of course, then there needs to be a market for that fuel. There needs to be somebody ready to take it, store it, uh, prepare it in a way that the customers are, are ready to use. So this architecture then also becomes a, uh, a recipient for that fuel supply coming down the gravity well, not just a fuel supply going up the gravity well. Daniel? And that plays in popular applications. Yes. Yeah, this is Rand. Uh, can you explain your color code here? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, white is is the status quo. Blue is, uh, which was introduced on the second slide there, is the uh, the, the satellite servicing vehicles, the tugs and, and, and services and life extension vehicles. And then green is what's enabled by uh, a fuel supply on orbit. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. So moving to slide 10 then, um, unless anyone's got any questions, jump in. I tend to talk quickly if I'm not interrupted, so feel free. Uh, slide 10 then, just some of the things that, uh, that we're doing at OrbitFab. Uh, we've had our first launch. We got uh, funded in June with uh, venture funding. Uh, first launch went up to the International Space Station in December. Um, propellant tanks and uh, you know, chicken valving, plumbing, uh, those kind of things, and uh, assessing some coupling technologies. Uh, second launch is happening. I think it's been pushed back now to April. Um, I'm always impatient and, uh, and disappointed by launch delays, but it is the, the, the fact in this industry. So we'll have uh, those zero-G propellant transfer trials happening on the ISS, uh, transferring water between the two tanks, and then we'll resupply the ISS uh, by offloading that water, which was, was launched inside the tanker. We are lining up then additional launches for this year which will let us then work towards a, a full fuel sale trial. So our first uh, sort of minimal operational tanker, if you want to call it that, really it's, it's only being used for, for um, a trial of a sort of end-to-end -end process. Uh, we'll also be doing some uh, equipment life testing on the ISS 
Uh, it's a, a completely platform for, for doing that. Uh, that then leads us into uh, launching a lot more tankers uh, starting in 2020 uh, and uh, announcing commercial availability as soon as we're able to get some inventory into orbit. So that's the timeline as we see it. The yellow dotted line, of course, there is, is where we're at today, and we've managed to achieve those major milestones that we wanted. On, uh, on slide 11, there's uh, some uh, Dan, uh, photos of Mark. Slide 11, yeah. I ask a question. This is Jerome Pearson. Uh, what's the form of this fuel? What form is it in? Is it water or hydrogen and oxygen, or what is it exactly? So for the uh, initial tests, we're using water. And uh, at Deep Space Industries, of course, we built the, the Comet Thruster, which, uh, which runs on water. gets uh, about 175 to 200 seconds specific impulse, so uh, better than nothing, but uh, uh, not as good as, as, uh, as some other things. Um, there's, uh, I think, four or five companies now that are either uh, building or, or um, already shipping product uh, in terms of water thrusters. So water is uh, just as water, not as hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, it's becoming a, uh, a propellant option. So we're, we'd like to encourage that. And because, of course, water is, is storable at, uh, at reasonably low pressures and, uh, and reasonable temperatures uh, and is non-toxic and non-flammable and uh, it's not kaboomable, uh, it's, a, it's very simple for us to get that onto launch vehicles and, and do experiments on the ISS. So we start there, but we expect to move into different propellants uh, over time, we're going to respond to demand, uh, and of course the demand at the moment isn't for water. The demand is for um, you know, the, the chemical propellants and, uh, and xenon on the electrical propellants that, that most people are familiar with. Yeah, so slide, um, slide 11 is showing some of the hardware that uh, we built so far. Um, we, you can see here some of the inflatable tanks that, uh, that we've been working on. Uh, we wanted to just sort of wrap our heads around that technology and see if there are applications there. Um, you can see Eric in the middle putting together uh, the two tanks. The one on the bottom is the rigid tank that uh, that contains the water, and then that will be flowed into the inflatable tank, which uh, on the left, uh, James is touching there. That's uh, that's full of water at that point. We were doing pressure tests at uh, uh, on the on the bench outside the lab, uh, and uh, of course that uh, that launched December five, the first piece of that hardware. And, uh, and is now on the International Space Station waiting for the astronauts to, to get around to testing it. Uh, on the next slide, 12, uh, more photos of, uh, of those tankers. Um, Realise we put these tankers together in four and a half months from funding to hand over to NASA uh, with uh, all the qualifications and verifications that required. Um, pretty proud of, of being able to do that and get to orbit in, uh, in six months with such a small team. Uh, also glad uh, John Goff's on the on the line, so a shout out to him. Uh, on the right there, you'll see the uh, the coupling from Ultius. We were able to get that on to the uh, to the tankers to, to test out how that would work. Uh, really got us a good understanding of his tech, and uh, and that was pretty interesting. Uh, John, I think, gave a talk uh, a few weeks ago about how they see how Ultius sees uh, this kind of thing moving forward as well. So good partners. We're we're really happy to, to help anyone who's moving in this direction. A lot of, uh, of little pieces like couplings and things that needed to get developed, um, proxops and docking technologies and various things. So we're trying to find everyone who's working in this direction and, and see if there's any way we can help them, including you know, flying bits of hardware on our equipment to, to test it out to, to get it through Flight Heritage. 
So on uh, on slide 13, uh, a comment on this. This is not endorsed by Northrop Grumman or uh, or Casis. Um, this is our proposal to them. Uh, but this sort of shows how this early ecosystem could evolve. Um, we're looking at, uh, at various different ways to get tanks of, uh, of water, in this case, into orbit. Um, and, uh, and so our first tanks went inside um, uh, a cargo resupply vehicle to the ISS. Uh, we're looking at ways to do uh, external tanks, to do uh, alternate launch tanks. But then to get them to the ISS, again, we don't want to solve the rendezvous proxox and docking problem. So we've asked uh, Northrop if they're interested in, in turning Cygnus into a water taxi. We've, we've looked at various other options as to how that might work. And, uh, and long-term, this can enable things like uh, assembly of satellites on the ISS or on commercial uh, spacecraft facilities. Because if you're, uh, if you're coming out of a, a space station that is necessarily low for uh, resupply purposes, um, you want to boost the satellites up to a higher altitude. You're going to need some kind of propellant. And uh, it's possible to... to 3D print tanks, perhaps, on orbit to, uh, to use inflatable tanks to do assembly to make antennas. Uh, all of that sort of adds together. So this, this provides another capability in a flow of consumables and, uh, and propellant into a, a space station. So this is, this is how we see, and we've broken this down into sort of a number of development projects in order to realize this architecture. But uh, it, it gives you an idea of, of where we're going, some of the places that we're thinking, and the kind of partners that we want to team up with um, to, to realize this, uh, we see our part as being the tanks, small tanks or large tanks, and, uh, and we want to, to create that ecosystem around it in order to, to realize greater things. So then slide 14 is, uh, is sort of one of the, the fuel supply trials we need to run. Uh, I mentioned that we'd be looking to do this sometime in, in 2020. Um, this, this one here is shown with a, uh, a chaser spacecraft and, uh, and a tanker, um, depicted as, as CubeSats, though they're very, very likely to be much bigger. This is an uh, artistic impression. Um, so a uh, couplings on both of them, the, the rendezvous proxops and docking capability on the receiving spacecraft. So deployed together, they could then come together and dock, transfer propellant, possibly into an inflatable tank, uh, more likely for the initial trial into a, into a rigid tank, but it allows the, the receiving vehicle to go and do a high delta V mission. And so we're looking for partners at the moment to, uh, to do this uh, satellite servicing side of this mission. Um, we have uh, a few parties interested in that. Uh, we have some parties who are just developing the rendezvous and proxops kit who are, are interested in, in perhaps building a, uh, a receiving spacecraft uh, to test their, their equipment. Uh, we want to run that to ground in the next few months so that we can actually start working on this in earnest. And, uh, and converge for, uh, for a flight next year. So uh, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned that was that was slide 14, just sort of showing that uh, that artwork. <clears throat> so that gives you a good idea of where we're going in the uh, in the short term, uh, as well as where we want to go with our vision. Uh, you'll notice here I haven't talked a lot about the moon, uh, and there are a lot of initiatives right now around the moon. Uh, we've seen sort of where that's headed. Um, we like a lot of where that's going. But for a small, scrappy startup company, we've had to focus on, on things that we can achieve with very limited funding and extremely limited personnel. So everything that, that you're seeing here are the things that we think we can keep achieving over the next few years. But uh, you know, the opportunities for, for finding partnerships to do things uh, around the moon for us are, are quite interesting. Um, I'd love to eventually be buying propellant from the moon and, and helping with the whole logistics chain uh, all the way up. But, um, but this, is, this is where we've got to start. So 
we're happy to be providing sort of the services and technologies that we've been able to make so far. Um, I finished on slide 15, and I realize that uh, I'm, I'm shorter perhaps than the usual five-step talk. But uh, this is our uh, artist impression of our, our first-generation tanker. It's basically a propane tank uh, with some solar panels on it. Um, this is where we start. We see this as the first step towards a, a bustling space economy. Um, you've got to start with something that's tractable and, uh, and something that's, that's achievable and, uh, and then build up. So we're, we're pretty excited to be able to get these tankers into orbit uh, as soon as we can uh, and start working with, with customers who have a real need for this fuel and uh, at the small scale and work up. So I have finished very early, but uh, I'm happy to take a lot of questions about this. Um, of course, my background in asteroid mining, I'd be happy to talk about that side of the supply chain as well. Um, what's, uh, what would people like to know about, or are we happy? Hey, Daniel, Dan, uh, Dallas? Uh, well, slide 14 talked about a high Delta V mission. If you're just using water propellant, that sort of limits your Delta V, doesn't it? So um, the, it depends on the mass uh, on the fuel mass ratios, of course, um, and the ISP that you can get out of your thruster. So and I'm not I'm not what I'm telling you here is the rocket equation that's kind of useless. But um, to contextualize this, the Tether's Unlimited thruster has an ISP of about 310 seconds. The Deep Space Industries thruster has an ISP of 100 and sorry Bradford Space now uh, ISP of 175 to 200 seconds. Uh, Steamjet in the UK is about the same range. Momentus are talking several hundred seconds of ISP. And then we've talked to electric propulsion thrusters, um, you know, magnetically shielded hull thrusters, and, uh, and other types of thrusters. They think they could pump that up to 1,500 to 2,000 seconds ISP. Now, much more work to be done. Those, those aren't available in a, in a form that could use water yet, and there's a lot of challenges with the atomic oxygen. But uh, it gives you an idea of, of where people are thinking. But for our demo mission, when we talk about high delta V, that might be a kilometer per second, something like that. It's still pretty significant for, uh, and, and well and truly demonstrates the, uh, the fuel transfer capabilities and, and what you can do with that fuel. Thank you. Hey, Daniel, this is Dallas. How are you? Dallas. Uh, my understanding is you're requiring your customers to come to you. Is that correct? Yep, that's basically it. We, we're a gas station. You have to drive in. Okay. Daniel, Gary here. Uh, you uh, working your way, uh, or planning on working your way around the triple point diagram uh, with respect to uh, to water, or are you uh, uh, you know just going to be uh, you, know, uh, you know living with it uh, in a liquid state for a while? So we've looked at both of those options. Uh, we've also looked at additives that could change the um, the, the, the freezing point. Um, that's an issue depending on whose thruster you're looking at. Um, and, and if we want to be compatible with everybody, then, then we've got to be very careful about that. Um, so at the moment, our systems are intended to just be passively thermally stable. Um, one of the great things is we have a huge thermal mass because you have a tank full of propellant. If it's, if it's water, we have a tank full of water, which is a fantastic thermal mass. So it's not that hard to keep it stable until the thing gets empty. And when it's empty, we don't care so much. The uh, are you, you know, uh, what are you presuming? Uh, you know, is in terms of, uh, I guess, is it any danger of freezing in your tanks, or uh, uh, what are you doing to, uh, you know, presuming to do to keep it, uh, you know, keep it liquid? 
Yeah, so a combination of, of careful thermal design, um, like I mentioned, passive thermal design, um, and then the addition of, of backup systems. Um, so there's some functional safety elements like uh, like heaters, of course, um, and we control the attitude on on here, so we can we can use that to our advantage. Uh, and so and then um, some uh, fail-safe systems. So what happens if we do have freezing, what happens if we if we have ruptured lines and those kind of things. We're thinking through all of those uh, to come up with a robust design. So at the moment, uh, it looks like we've got all of those, you know, enough layers of of, um, uh, of controls in there and uh, and enough fail-safe if uh, if we do end up freezing that uh, it's, not, it's not keeping us awake at night, but it's something we're actively working on. Very interesting. Other questions? This is Rob Hoyt at Tethers Unlimited. Uh, I was wondering what orbits you're planning on putting the, the tankers into? Yeah, hi Rob. Um, we'll put the tankers into orbits where customers want them. So uh, thankfully orbits tend to bunch up a little bit. So SunSync, uh, geostationary, um, ISS orbit, and, uh, and then the, the comms constellation type orbits. We've also analyzed plane changes and what it would take to move tankers between those orbits and, and how you know, the logistics work for that. Um, it's a terrible thing to be consuming our own product. Uh, that, uh, that, that drives up our costs, of course. But, uh, but those are the kind of things that we've looked at. We think we can, we can close this, but I mean, it's, it's a hard business. I don't advise anybody to go into it, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we think that we've got, uh, got some use cases that we can start with at the, at the really small end. The questions are going to be about scale. Like, can we turn this into something sizable or are we always stuck with um, some, some very specific solutions? And that's the challenge that, that we've got to work through. And, and that mostly drives from, uh, well, it derives from two things. One is orbits, and the other is just the, the real range of propellants that are out there. Just to, Other just questions to on, that, on, on that last question, uh, really interesting question about, about orbits. But I think that what it comes down to is a marketing decision. Do you, do you target orbits or do you target customers? Um, and, and, and where, where, you know, there's sort of a line in between them, and where do you sit? Uh, you know, for for example, um, you could say, "Hey, Geo is a great place to be. Geo is really advantageous. There's lots of hardware there. One in one orbit, that'd be really nice." But satellites in Geo don't use a lot of propellant, and much lower orbits do. So that has to get figured into the decision making. Yeah, it's exactly right. And it's there's a lot of things that that we still haven't run to ground. On this, but uh, we're working with uh, with people who are, who are you know looking at these from the satellite servicing perspective, and uh, and that's helped us because because they've already looked at the at the business model a lot already, and uh, and they're able to share with us what they need. Um, so you know, that's that's one of the ways that we've been able to approach this. Thank you, Daniel. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. 
If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.